Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Today's first reading comes from Jonah. When God saw what the Ninevites did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right to be angry? Our next reading comes from Matthew. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them for their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those who came were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received one denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last only worked one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I give you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. This is the word of God for the people of God. Awesome. Y'all can take a seat. Thanks, Ben. And Nina. Y'all may have noticed, if you've been worshiping with us for some time, often when we do our call to worship, we will talk about the season of the church calendar we're in. So we're in Advent, a season of anticipation, looking forward to something. We're in Christmastide, we're rejoicing and celebrating that Jesus has come. And you may have noticed we haven't talked about the season of the church calendar we're in in a long time, and that's because today is the 17th Sunday after Pentecost in a season called Ordinary Time. When we're counting and we're up to 17, it feels like this is lasting for a long time. And honestly, I'm helped by the seasons of the church calendar. I'm helped when my worship is directed towards something. And it doesn't even have to be something positive. Even Lent for me is helpful to know I'm in a posture of repentance, of mourning over my sinful condition, and I'm looking towards Easter. I'm waiting for the resolution that will come. But in ordinary time, I often feel like, hey, what are we doing here? I'm 17 Sundays in and I'm not really sure where I'm headed. Maybe some of us can relate to feeling this way in our own personal lives. We count the Sundays in ordinary time from Pentecost. Pentecost is this momentous occasion at which the church is commissioned. It's sent out in the authority of the Spirit. And as the people are sent, we are sent into the world 
But this season of ordinary time, it often reminds me of Israel wandering in the wilderness. They had their own sending and commissioning event, the Exodus, and we see them at first really hyped to be the people of God, excited at what he's doing through them, and yet as they enter into their wilderness wanderings, very quickly that turns into complaining against God and bitterness with one another. And the season of ordinary time, our lectionary calendar, the calendar that determines the text that we preach, has had us in a series of texts that are primarily focused on us getting along as the people of God, us avoiding being people who in the wilderness wanderings bicker with each other and complain against God. So two weeks ago, John was preaching out of Matthew chapter 18, and he was talking about how we confront somebody who sins against us. And then last week, we were in Romans 14, talking about how we charitably disagree with one another on matters of conscience. And our texts for us today are about what do we do with the feelings that are in us when we feel like somebody else does not deserve to belong to the people of God. And what we're going to find as we go through this text is that our response to others who are following often tells us more about ourselves than about them. So that's what we're looking at today. I want to recap our text to start, and I want to give you permission to laugh. I noticed no one laughed when Ben read the Jonah text. It is funny, okay? So let's see what's going on here. What's going on in the story of Jonah is he's a disobedient prophet. I don't know how familiar everyone is with the story of Jonah. Maybe you remember a felt board somewhere dimly in your past where there was a whale involved. He was swallowed up. Jonah's whole thing is he is called by God to go preach repentance to Nineveh, and he runs away, which is a crazy thing for a prophet to do. You would think somebody who has been commissioned by God to speak on his behalf, calling people to repentance, would know better than to think he could run from God. And yet that's exactly what he does. And God brings him back to his assignment. He preaches to the people of Nineveh. And in 310, the very beginning of our teaching text for today, they respond in repentance. And it prompts this outburst from Jonah. So read what he says here. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. Because I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. What Jonah is doing here is he's saying, God, you always do this. You forgive people. It's not fair. Why do you forgive them? He's using the exact same title that God gave himself back when he revealed himself to Moses in the wilderness. I'm a God abounding in steadfast love. I'm generous. I'm compassionate. And Jonah is mad about it. He's a pouting little kid. Verse three, he goes on, and if we were doubting that he was pouting, if we were doubting that we should laugh, this should seal it for us. God, just take my life. It's better for me to die than live. He's an angsty teenager. Just kill me. Just put me in the dirt. Put me in the mud. I don't even need a coffin. Just kill me right now if this is how you're going to act. Jonah's upset. And really, if we're reading this text for what it is, it should make us pause as the reader and ask, why is this in our Bible? Because he is not an example to us. At least he's not a positive example of how we're supposed to act. We ought not imitate Jonah, who's complaining against God because God is so compassionate that he would even forgive the Ninevites. Jonah is in our Bible because he's a scathing critique. He's a critique of anyone who would adopt the same posture that would say, why are you saving people, God? They don't deserve it. They don't deserve to belong to your family. 
this ought to be an embarrassment to him and it ought to be an embarrassment to us when we find ourselves in the same posture. Because often we can have the same feelings that Jonah has. We can think that there are people groups, that there are certain kinds of people whom the mercy of God ought not go to, that it ought not be extended to. And in that way, Jonah is meant to function as a mirror to ourselves, asking, where do I feel these same feelings cropping up in me? Where do I feel like they don't deserve mercy? Or where do I feel like, if you're being really honest with the spiritual condition of your heart, where you've said to God, if this is how you're going to make my life, you might as well just kill me, because I don't want to live like this. If this is going to be my allotment of life, you might as well kill me. And to give Jonah a little bit of the benefit of the doubt here, to make him not a total straw man, I want you to think about what's going on in his context, who Nineveh is to him. So Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, mightiest empire in the world at the time that Jonah is being written. Their biggest city says it would take three days to walk one end to the other. And what Assyria represents to the people of God, this is the nation that God will use to bring judgment against Israel. These are the people who will conquer Israel, driving them into exile and slavery. So there's an earthly sense, a worldly sense, at which we can look at Jonah's attitude towards Nineveh and understand where he's coming from. These people want to see the purposes of God brought to an end through the people that God has chosen. They want to see Israel wiped out and yet, somehow, God is extending mercy to these people. It doesn't make sense. Jonah understands his role as a prophet. He is an arrow in the Lord's quiver, meant to pierce the stony heart of the people of Nineveh, and Jonah does not want them to receive it. He doesn't want them to repent. This feels like maybe you've been in a fight with a spouse or a friend before, where there's a special occasion on the horizon. So maybe you've been fighting with somebody right before their birthday, and you know you're going to feel this relational tension where you're feeling this, like, I have to apologize because I have to tell them happy birthday, and I don't want to tell them happy birthday without our fight being resolved. And so it's like, but I don't want to. I want them to feel the weight of my displeasure against them. I want them to know you did something wrong, and I don't want you to get off the hook. Maybe you felt this before when you're getting ready to take communion. We have this moment where we are praying before the Lord, hey, here are my sins, and there can be this sense in us where it's like, but I don't want to make up. I don't want to follow Jesus' instruction to leave my offering at the altar and go reconcile with a brother or a sister because I want them to know they did something wrong. I'm mad about it. They deserve to be punished. So Jonah ought to introduce a question to us of discomfort, a question of asking where do I operate in the same way as Jonah? Where do I feel like somebody else does not deserve the grace offered? And so the question I want you to think about is, do we have the same spirit in us that longs to see someone judged before we would have them receive mercy? And this isn't something that's limited to Jonah's context, where Israel is a landowning people and God is accomplishing his purposes through one nation. Jesus picks up on the same theme in Matthew chapter 20. And if I can set a little bit of context for us, the text that we just heard from was a parable where Jesus is expounding on an idea he's introducing in chapter 19. And I think we know the story from chapter 19. It's the parable, or rather, sorry, the story of the rich young man who comes to Jesus and asks, 
hey, how do I follow you? How do I obey the commandments? And after a little bit of back and forth, Jesus ultimately tells this man, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and then you can come follow me. And the man walks away deeply saddened because he had great possessions. And there's this record scratch moment in the story where the disciples who are watching this begin to freak out because they say, hold on, Jesus, are you saying that he can't follow because he's wealthy? Because I was really hoping to be wealthy. (laughs) And I think we can miss this in the context of the story. The disciples view themselves as the people who bought Bitcoin back at $8, waiting for it to get sky high in price. They are casting their lot in with Jesus as a king. When they're confessing him to be the Messiah, the Christ, they are thinking Jesus will come into an empire and because I've been with him from day one, I will be rewarded. I will have an income. I will have a place of inheritance and responsibility because I put my chips on you. And Jesus, he clarifies in this moment, he says to them, it's true, you will receive an inheritance for following me. Any cost that you've borne, leaving your family, leaving behind your job, leaving behind your city, you will be repaid for those things. But Jesus also detects in them this incorrect presupposition about what it means to follow after him. And so this parable is meant to be instructive. It's meant to be a warning. And it begins with this phrase that Jesus says, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first, which is one of those phrases where I think we kind of like narrow our eyes and nod, like, yeah, that sounds wise. Uh, This is a phrase that I call a Francis Bacon saying. Have y'all heard this story, Francis Bacon? So there's a famous quote, knowledge is power, said by a philosopher, Francis Bacon. And there was a little kid growing up, his dad would always say, knowledge is power, Francis Bacon, attributing the quote. And the kid heard this as knowledge is power, Francis Bacon. And so all throughout his life, when people would say knowledge is power and they wouldn't finish the quote, he would chime in, and Francis Bacon. And they'd kind of like look at him for a second. They'd, yeah, sure. And it wasn't until years later when he saw it written down, he was like, oh, I'm an idiot. This is a quote being attributed to somebody. But sometimes Jesus has these punchy little sayings. The first will be last and the last will be first where we go like, oh, and Francis Bacon, sure. What What does Jesus mean when he says this. Maybe that was unhelpful for our (laughs) attentiveness here. Well, what Jesus is doing in the parable of the workers is it's a pretty simple plot. There's a man who hires a bunch of workers to come work in his vineyard, and he hires them all throughout the day. And then when pay time comes, no matter the amount of time they've worked, he pays them the same wage. And what this does is it makes the last one who, or sorry, the last one paid, the first one hired, indignant. He feels slighted, stiffed by this wage structure. And there's two complaints that this worker levies against the landowner in this moment. So he says to the landowner, you've made them equal to us, which is an incredibly insulting thing to say. You've made them equal to us. It implies that the other people are subhuman. They don't deserve to get what I have. And again, if this parable is meant to be instructive to us in our following after God, maybe you're hearing what I just said and you're thinking, well, I'm not that mean. I wouldn't say that. But I I want you to think about if you've ever made it through a college admissions process and you're feeling pretty good about yourself, you're in your college, and then one day you're assigned to a group project and you have a group project member who is one of the dumbest people you've ever met in your life. And there's this sense in which not only do I have to carry this person across the finish line to receive the grade that I want, 
But also, if you extrapolate a little bit and think forward, you can start to think about, this person actually is going to receive the same diploma that I get. They're going to cheapen my degree. <laughs> They're going to be from the same place. And this worker, he's looking at this wage structure, and he feels that same indignation arising in him. How can you count us equal? We're not equal. We haven't done the same thing. So it's not only that as his complaint. He also says, I've borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. I've been sweating. I've been digging. Have you not been seeing what I've been doing? What has this person done? And again, I'm sure you can think of moments in your life where you feel like I have put in legitimate effort, legitimate work, and I'm being passed over and not rewarded, not seen in what I'm doing. And what Jesus is doing in this moment, in telling this story, is he's trying to clue us in on how naturally we go to this place of thinking that we are not seen for what we've done and that it's unfair that other people are receiving in the way that they are. And what's interesting to me about this parable of the workers is the worker ultimately is not upset about the work he had to do. He's fine that he toiled. What he's upset about is that other people get paid even when they didn't do the same work. It makes him feel like his faithfulness is irrelevant. It's a similar posture to the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, right? I've been here all along. Why are you throwing a party for this guy who's coming back after squandering your inheritance? So Jesus is telling his disciples this story because they're in danger of getting an attitude about thinking of what they are owed in the kingdom. His concern is that we would not operate off of what we are owed. So like Jonah, these disciples think there are others who are, wor are not worthy to participate. They haven't paid the same cost. And these parables are meant to be warnings to us. They're meant to be instructive to us in our posture about how we have received the kingdom, how we've entered into God's people. And one thing I want us to see in both stories in the story of Jonah, Nineveh repents. They have a legitimate repentance. In the story of the laborers in the vineyard, they accept the call to come work. So there is a response, there is a sense in which a response is demanded of us of repentance, of joining in on the work that God is inviting us into. But our posture in the kingdom is not one of measuring works against each other. It can be really easy for us to default into comparing ourselves to other people and trying to decide, who do I feel like legitimately belongs? And so I want to pause here, and I want to ask, why do we feel this way? Why can I find myself in the story of Jonah, the embarrassing prophet, who's saying to God, you might as well kill me if you're going to be nice to other people? Why do I find myself in the story of these laborers saying, this is unfair. How dare you pay these people in your generosity? Why can we see ourselves here? And what's going on in us, at least in part, is that we have a wrestle of justice in tension with God's mercy. There are things that we want to see accomplished because they're right. Jonah has some right leanings against Nineveh. It's bad that they are opposed to the people of God. It's bad that eventually they will put his nation to death. Yet Jonah cannot resolve the tension of justice and mercy that's before him. And Jesus seems to be drawing out the same thing for us. 
We have a hard time dealing with God's question that he levels to Jonah in chapter four. He says, are you right to be angry? And oftentimes, if we were responding in honesty, we would say, yeah, I'm right to be angry. This isn't fair. Why do they get this? We all have people who we think are unworthy, if we're being honest with ourselves. And it may not even be that they are unworthy of salvation. It may be that we feel that it's unfair that they get to follow while having something in their life that we don't have. So why does this person get to be married and follow after you while I have to be single? Why does this person get to have wealth while I don't? Why do they have a sane, functional family while I don't? Why do they have fulfillment in their career and I don't? And what we can find ourselves doing is counting the cost that we have borne in order to follow after Jesus and getting to a place where we harbor resentment in our hearts towards brothers and sisters in the faith. We harbor resentment in our hearts because we insist on counting what we feel that we're owed while others haven't paid the same cost. We say along with the laborer in the vineyard, God, you're making them equal to us. What often happens in the Christian life is we begin from a posture of grace and then move on to relying on our works. But grace is unmerited favor. It's getting something that we didn't earn. And it's almost crazy to think that we would choose to live on our works rather than continue to dwell in the grace that God has given. But I think we do it because in a strange way, it can feel more comfortable. It can feel more tangible for me to produce a kind of relativistic righteousness in myself. Not that I'm righteous in any ultimate sense before God, but when I look around at other people and I say, well, I've borne more of a cost than you have. I've done more than you have. I've given more than you have. We can get this sense of superiority in ourselves. It feels safer even though it's not, even though it's not resting in what's been offered to us in Jesus. This is something that I've seen in a really unique way in a family that I'm friends with in San Antonio. They were really involved in missions for a long time in Russia. Way longer story here, but ultimately they ended up adopting two children from Russia. One of them was an older boy, and when he made it back to the States, they noticed this weird behavior that he had at dinner. So they'd all be seated around the table together, and very slowly, he would reach out a hand and grab a piece of bread, and he'd bring it back to his plate, then he'd let it rest there. Then he'd take his napkin from his lap, and he'd bring it up to his plate and cover his bread. Then he'd take the piece of bread down to his lap, and when he thought no one was looking, he'd take the piece of bread and he'd put it in his pocket. Because he'd never been in a home where there had been a promise of another meal the next day. And they started finding drawers full of bread. His closet was packed with bread. Under his bed was bread. Because he couldn't believe the promise of adoption that had been granted to him. He couldn't believe that he was allowed by grace to enter into a seat at the table. And so he stored up for himself these little pieces of bread that would grow stale and moldy with time. And friends, this is what we find ourselves doing in the kingdom. We enter by grace, by unmerited favor, and then we begin to doubt our place. 
and we begin to grab these little works of righteousness, these little roles that we can fill our pockets with in order that we might feel safer about what is coming to us. And then, from this weird place, we begin begrudging the other people who are seated at the table because we're comparing our stale little roles with this bountiful feast that's been placed before them and wondering, God, why are you being merciful to them? They didn't deserve this. That's what sin does in us. So what do we do with that? If you find yourself having a hard time extending grace to other people, chances are it's because you've stopped believing it for yourself. Grace is one of those things we cannot extend to other people if we have not internalized it for ourselves. And again, we operate out of this posture of wanting what is fair, wanting what is each person is owed, but grace is unfair. Grace means getting what you do not deserve. So a little lesson here. Oh, this has been up for a while. Justice is getting what you deserve. So justice is getting what's coming to you. It's what Jonah wanted for the people of Nineveh. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. We struggle with grace. We struggle at getting what we do not deserve. And there's one thing that's instructive to us, ought to be instructive to us in these two stories, is that God is actively looking for ways to wake people up to their denial of grace. So in the story of the laborers in the vineyard, one thing that's really significant is the landowner instructs that the people who were hired last be paid first. He could have avoided the whole thing if he just paid the people who were hired first, first. They never would have known that everybody made the same wage. The landowner wants them to become enraged. He wants them to see, hey, you're making the same thing as everybody else hired before you because he wants them to wrestle through the feelings that arise in them when this comes up. In the story of Jonah, you may remember the details towards the end of the chapter. Jonah walks out of Nineveh after his kind of pouty fit to God. He decides to go look over the city to see what's going to happen. And God, in his kindness, appoints a plant to grow and to shade Jonah. And then the next day, God appoints a worm to come attack the plant. And it dies and shrivels. And then Jonah's sitting in the heat, and he again says, you might as well just kill me if you're going to make me hot. Which again, it's like, golly, dude, can you grow up a little bit? But he's complaining against God, and God uses this again to ask him the same question. Is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be upset at me? And the reason I'm belaboring this point is, friends, if you have someone or something or some group that you find yourself embittered towards, their participation in the people of God, you don't belong or you haven't earned the same place that I have, it may be that God is trying to wake you up to the fact that you have not internalized the grace that he has offered you. That you are angry because you're taking these roles from the table and then asking why did they have a seat when you have a seat as well. You are getting what you don't deserve. What God is trying to do at those moments where you feel bitterness towards another person is he is inviting you into a fuller life. He's inviting you to wake up to, if I can't extend grace to somebody else, then I don't understand what I have been given in Jesus. There's something more for me here. And back to how I opened us up, this season of ordinary time, this season of wandering and waiting. The New Testament is full of warnings against rivalry 
selfish ambition, conceit. It's full of admonitions towards unity with each other. One of the most surefire ways there will be bitterness in the church, there will be opposition in the church, is if we find other people to be illegitimate attendees, illegitimate people in the kingdom of God. And so what I want to press us towards is, church, we need to labor to refresh ourselves on the grace that has been offered to us daily. I'm reminded of David's posture in the Psalms. He, at one point, says, Why are you downcast, O my soul, and why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I will rejoice in him again, my salvation and my God. And I think about that Psalm because David is arguing with himself. He's literally asking a question of his own soul. Why are you so upset? You know what's going on. You know that you have grace from God. Don't be upset. Rejoice. And he's literally, we catch him in an argument with himself. We ought to adopt the posture of David arguing with ourselves if we find ourselves in a place of bitterness towards other people who are in God's family. We ought to labor towards praying our way towards receiving the grace that we have been offered in Jesus. And I think one thing that's really helpful here, there's a Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McChain. He had a saying where he said, for every look you take at yourself, look 10,000 times to Christ which I think is a helpful corrective for us because I think the more we look at ourselves, the more we think about God, what you have or haven't given me in comparison to what you have or haven't given this other person, the more inclined we will find ourselves to be embittered towards other people. But if we can take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on Jesus and the grace that he has offered us, then we will be able to internalize what has been done for us and we will be able to live as those freed to accept other people, to invite them to the table as well. So friends, I want you to hear, if we're not living from the grace we've received, we will not be able to offer it to others. So fight for it. Fight to live from the grace that you have received. Y'all, we want people to get what they deserve or what we think they deserve, but the good news of the gospel is people don't get what they deserve. You don't get what you deserve. That's the good news. If we're in Christ, that is true for us. So may God refresh and renew our hearts that we would feast at his table, not begrudging other people their seat, but recognizing all of us have been invited in grace. Pray with me. God, I thank you that there are stories like Jonah and stories like the parable of the laborers in the vineyard where even though on the surface it can feel funny, we can laugh, if I take a second to think about it, I find myself there too. I find myself struggling with the same things. And I thank you that you are gracious and merciful. I thank you that you're a God who is slow to anger, compassionate, abounding in steadfast love. God, for this people, we thank you that we are in Christ and in that we have received grace. God, I pray for your church that we would be a people who learns to labor towards internalizing the grace that has been offered to us so that we would be a people marked by a supernatural unity, that there would be no bitterness, there would be no rivalry or conceit dividing us, but that all of us would see we have been invited into the table by adoption in grace, not through works that we've done or costs that we've borne. And I pray that that would free us, God, to love others without condition. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.